I think with the pluralism comes a pluralism of approach. And, yeah. and we've already said there's an evangelical instinct towards keeping preaching the same message, but doing it in a different way in different generations. And what we've contributed to that conversation is to say, as we approach, as we attempt to do that, let's include younger voices in our discussion about how we adapt to the new world. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast. It is fantastic to have you along with us, as always, whether you are watching us on YouTube or listening to us on your favourite podcast app. And I have another one of my favourite people with me, Stu Croshaw. How are you? I'm very good, Joel. That's excellent. Uh, we don't have Tim joining us today. He, ha- he uh, no. unfortunately got COVID, so he's not able to... He has to isolate for he this is. moment. We did talk a few weeks ago. It's like something that we have to deal with rather regularly at the moment. Yeah, so. yeah and he's all right. So yes, he's all yeah, going fine. Uh, symptoms aren't too bad. Yes, excellent. But we are here to continue to talk about whatever happened to evangelism, Stu, and we always, uh, we, we thought we might, we, a, a, a draft title that you came up with just then was the iPhone evangelism. Yeah, well, the, we're looking at the decade where the iPhone came and what happened in the, the decade and how the iPhone changed evangelism, yeah. changed social communication with social media coming on the fore. We've also got... Big things happening, like you mentioned last week, with 9-11 in the decade. And we've also got um, the new atheist movement emerging, which created different responses. Uh, church also became uh, more plurified in the time as well. So, yeah, looking forward to talking about all those things and much more. Absolutely. Now, I, I'm glad that you brought up the plurification of uh, culture because um, one of the cultural artifacts or the stories that I thought were worth sharing today was... Um, the internet. I thought I'd, I'd, I've got one for you if you're ready to listen because you usually haven't. And I appreciate when you bring them to to this podcast. But uh, I thought we could start talking about the internet, as you were saying. And uh, I thought a, an interesting moment for me was growing up. Um, I was still very. I was always very much into sport, and I kind of just followed the sport that my dad was into. Mm. Um, and then there's the usual things of rugby league, and uh, we watched a lot of rugby union too, as well. But um, especially Australia games, but. Uh, the the one that he really got me into was motor racing, which is a little bit more left field. Um, so really got into that. But um, what was interesting when I got into uh, you get into high school and you start thinking for yourself a little little bit more and trying to d- define yourself as an, uh, and your identity and things like that was uh, I really got into football. And one of the main reasons was because of the internet. Um, you didn't just have to consume it on a you know, SBS. Obviously, had a lot of uh, football at that time, but also. Uh, the the Premier League was really on the rise, and I had to, uh, decided that I had to find a Premier League team. And uh, I'm actually it's lucky that I'm wearing a Liverpool jacket today because that's the team that I chose and still support them today. But um, the thing that really developed my uh, supporterism, however you the fanship, <laughs> was um, the internet. Supporterism, I think. supporterism. I think neither neither of them are words. I don't no, think they could be new ones. Yeah, um, my fandom was. Uh, being able to read um, people from overseas commentating on the on the game of football, and um, I remember clearly that there was this period where we would all get the Champions League draw, and I remember clearly a free period that we had where we were just sitting in the playground, or it was a free period, or the, no, a teacher didn't turn up or something, and we'd I'd written all the games down that would come up, like literally all the groups. So there was eight groups in the Champions League and we went through all of them during that period. It's like, no, this team's going to make it, this team's going to make it. And the only reason I could do that was because I could access that information on Mm. the internet. Mm. And it was a much more 
uh, real time, when the draw came out, you could actually get the draw straight out, rather than you have to wait for it to be in the paper the next day mm. and all that kind of thing. So I think that's um, an interesting example of like that. And now I'm, I'm such a football supporter now, but I wasn't prior to that. So the internet was a, a catalyst for actually making me really interested in football and, and be able to jump on forums um, to read match reports like the almost the night of that it happened really changed how I supported um, football. And you're a football supporter. Didn't mm. the internet change how you consume football as well? It did actually, yeah. I had a slightly different story that my dad actually introduced me to football mm. because he came from England and he emigrated to Australia in the 1960s. And when I was little, my dad introduced me to his soccer team or football team in England, and that's Sheffield Wednesday. So uh, when you were researching and finding out new things about teams and getting into that yourself. For me, mm. the 2000s was more immediacy for the support I could give for the team because when I was younger, when I was a, in primary school in the 1970s, we'd order a shirt from England and it'd take months or weeks or whatever to come out and then we get it. That was a big deal. Uh, the reports of the games, the only way we had any access to reports of the games was to read the Sydney Morning Herald results on the Monday morning. So I remember going to my dad's paper every Monday and turning to the back page and looking for Sheffield Wednesday results. It was on the right in the back, back with all those results that they used to put Yeah, in. they did. Yeah. And then the other thing was the thing called Match of the Day, which was a TV show on the ABC. So you got a snippet of a highlight and every now and again you'd get your team would be on for the full match, which would be pretty exciting. Mm. And then in the internet era, of course, like all of a sudden I can meet fans. I got in touch with the chaplain for Sheffield Wednesday, became friends with him and before uh, too long in the 2010s actually, he's tweeting me from the stands in the crowd telling me what's happening and mm -hmm. where that player was and why that went off and all this kind of cool stuff. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's just more immersive experience. And then, of course, we saw every game if we wanted to. Almost everything was on the internet. So, And yeah, you learning about Sheffield Wednesday from your dad, that's the traditional way of how... Uh, support supporterism, mm. <laughs> as I said, was fandom. Yeah, it was yeah, fandom <laughs> was passed on through generations yeah. of um, families yeah, like yeah. that. But yeah. I was, for example, you I, came I was to it yourself. Yeah, yeah, I came to being a Liverpool supporter myself, mm. and then I got my dad on board to oh, be a supporter of Liverpool, and then yeah. he's into it. Now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. So yeah, go. uh, we're going to watch the Champions League final together when it's he comes exciting. comes here yeah. to Australia because he lives good. in the US. Anyway, that's awesome. Uh, the other thing probably worth putting in there is um, the iPhone. Do you do you want to talk about that? Because you're you're and you and I are both quite uh, Apple fanboys. We're sitting here we with are. two Apple computers. If I'd have thought about it, I could have brought in something that predated the iPhone, which was Apple's first crack at it, which was called the Newton. Yes. And I bought one of those Did earlier you? in the decade, and it was a dog. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. But I've kept it for sentimental yeah. purposes. But that's a non-Steve Jobs product, wasn't it? I didn't know that. I believe so. That. I believe that Steve Jobs was ousted from mm. Apple, mm. and the Newton was uh, mm. or maybe they started with Steve Jobs but um, uh, oh yeah because he was out, off the, out of the company for it was a while. the so uh, they developed it while he was the CEO away. who used to be um, CEO of Pepsi ah uh, yes took yeah, yeah yeah who took over and yeah. Steve Jobs had groomed him to take mm. over and stuff mm. but it mm. obviously wasn't happy and probably started the mm. decline of Apple to actually yeah, bringing Steve back yeah yeah and then they started the iMac and then that developed to the iPod and then that developed to the iPhone it was a very very heady era for Apple fans, yeah. <laughs> but I think I think what we've been saying in the shock absorber, Joel, is that either a new technology or a crisis in the culture mm. creates new culture. So if there's been a, a depression or a war or a, or a significant cultural shock, then that can lead to a change in the way people see the world or a new 
technology like the iPhone equally can change the way people relate to each other because uh, before the iPhone, we used to have telephones that were hanging on the wall at home that were landlines. And if you rang me on my landline, you would leave a message on my answering machine if yeah. I had an answering machine. But if you didn't have an answering machine, you just had to keep ringing until you got onto someone. And now you've got this phone where you can take phone calls wherever you are. So uh, one interesting outcome of the iPhone is that younger people since the iPhone have had a higher expectation of communication than my generation so if I went to school at high school and I rang my mate to tell him something and I didn't get on to him I didn't even care I just wait till I see him the next day and it's very rare these days that I would actually think like that so there's a good example of how culture has changed because of this invention mm. and the thing about the shock absorber that's really good is that um, people like me are what are described as digital immigrants because when I was younger I didn't have the internet I didn't have digital social media and iPhones and so I've immigrated into that like my father immigrated from England to Australia and had to learn a new culture when he came to Australia mm. the new culture created by iPhone means that I need to learn it and relearn it as it continues on but younger people like my sons they actually grew up with technology particularly my second son Elijah who's now just turning 18 he's it, it, it's, iPhones have been and screens have been ubiqu ubiquitous so he's a digital native whereas mm. I'm a digital immigrant so what's interesting about this time is it's a massive epoch in the 2000s because not only has the iPhone come along but we talked last week about 9-11 being a big cultural shift too and just like uh, you were talking about finding a football team on the internet so 9-11 uh, uh, was a pivotal moment around the world where extremists started to spread their extreme ideology around the world through the internet and that became quite a, a, a massive cultural thing as well. So the shock absorber is helpful because we need young people who are digital natives to be able to help people who are digital immigrants to understand what's going on with that change and also when there's a big cultural shock like an extremist event like that, sometimes it's the older people who can bring big biblical wisdom to that event that can help the younger people adjust to it. But no matter what, the culture just keeps changing and changing and so we need to keep adapting. So our evangelism in this era, it'd be, it's going to be fascinating today actually to talk about evangelism because we've got these two major moments happening, the 9-11 and the iPhone, but then there's so many other things like the rise of new atheism and there's... Uh, there's also the new social media that comes with iPhone as well. So it's a very intense time of change, which I think explodes into the 2010s, actually. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I graduated high school in 2004, mm. so that's a kind of the era we're talking about. But I thought, I find it interesting comparing to what Tim was talking about, how mm. there was a, an evangelical, evangelical counterculture being mm. created for what was going on in the culture that I think maybe I may have been on the end of that, I'm not sure. But I also came from a non-Christian family. But I find it interesting that um, it was at my time. It was very much you just do whatever you want. But even if you were a Christian, you're a little bit on the outer. You mm. you really don't know what's going on within uh, not society, but I'm talking about when we were in high school. It was kind of like, oh yeah, they're Christians and they can stay over there, and that's about it. I didn't experience too much people giving me a hard time. But I think it was also I don't think I was that. Uh, apparent, I was wasn't that apparent that I was a Christian. I was just wondering, in you've you've seen this period kind of as technology. It shifts to, after nine eleven. It shifts to like a technological age. We also talked about um, the end of an era in terms of like America had won mm. in a sense. What? How did that? Because, they, because of the fall of the USSR in the late 
yeah. the 80s. Yeah, exactly. and we also, um, and um, Francis Fukuyama talked about yeah. it being um, the end of history yeah. almost. Yeah, there was this sense that liberal democracy would just now yeah. have an unimpeded yeah. rise that would spread across the globe. And yeah. I think that plays into the, what I was thinking about with uh, school was that it was, it was a similar vibe. I think mm. that there was a similar feeling of like everything's there's not much to worry about except for maybe the the 911 probably the terrorism extremism aspect but mm. your day to day is not so, that's not something you need to worry mm. about so everything is going to be progressive and everything is going to be great and we're all going to just enjoy our lives and do whatever mm. we want i think that's where i kind of making that observation i was just asking though that how did you see that play out in terms of ministry because mm. you you talked about uh the 90s you were looking at community was really important do you think that the these shifts that we're talking about after 911 uh, changed that feeling that community wasn't as important it was more individualistic yeah well as we've been talking about this season there's a bit of an evangelical line that goes through history mm. and evangelicalism continues to morph and change as it goes through and sometimes it splinters so we've already talked about the fact that Pro- protestantism uh, emerged after the reformation and after the protestantism emerged later down the track protestantism um, goes down different uh, highways, if you like, and maybe you know some prominent ones is a charismatic highway, the fundamentalist highway that we're talking about, the evangelical uh, groups that continue to preach the gospel, and uh, that led to the Great Awakenings um, that we talked about in earlier episodes. But also, there's the liberals that created a modernist Christianity as well, and so the diversity of the Protestant response to cultural change continues to diversify as well so if you look at evangelicalism by the end of the 1990s you can see that there is uh, evangelicalism and there's fundamentalism side by side and there is this uh, liberalism of christians who have you know lost the confidence in the bible that the evangelicals have and then the fundamentalists that in a way are adding to the confidence of the Bible by saying let's get politically active and let's get angry about the cultural issues that are happening in our mm. time. Well, by the time the end of the 90s, a lot of Gen Xers are starting to feel dissatisfied with the expressions of baby boomer church that had been passed down to them. And so the baby boomer generation that had been having all these different divergent expressions now see the Gen Xers actually trying to assert themselves as uh, people who are asking new questions and coming out of the decade of the 90s there is a group of Christians that are actually dissatisfied with church with local church sometimes they've had a bad experience of church sometimes they've had an argument with a leader in church or uh, or, or it might just be a theological thing but there is this beginning of um, first of all within youth ministry this search for different ways of doing youth ministry and that then flows into different ways of doing church so people are asking the question is there any other ways of doing church and this coincides with the end of the century Mm -hmm. and in the early 2000s already by that time uh, we get this uh, church planning phenomena of the emerging church where emerging churches are starting to spring up as different kinds of churches different new expressions of church what did that end up looking like? I mean, mm. uh, what is the reaction to the traditional expressions of church and why did they end up wanting to do it differently and how did that look? Yeah, well, we, we're dealing with a, a culture that's postmodern. So part of postmodernism is deconstruction. So deconstruction is taking something that is known and changing how you see it. Mm. So, for example, Batman was released in 2008. The Dark Knight, I think it was, with Heath Ledger was mm. playing the Joker and all, almost the Joker who had been a... Uh, a villain 
throughout the whole of the 60s right up until then almost becomes an anti-hero in mm. the movie and Heath Ledger's role in that which was critically acclaimed and actually some say even led to him losing his life because he yeah. was so into the character interesting story we could talk about another time but this idea of the joker in batman being almost as prominent in the story as batman is a good example of deconstruction so also batman is deconstructed from his origins particularly from the 60s the real slapstick sort of batman <laughs> that was really friendly and happy and well bright colors now batman is wearing black and he's very moody and dark and he himself is struggling with his inner demons as well so this idea of uh deconstruction sort of brings about a certain kind of honesty i suppose like that the world isn't either the guys wearing the white hats or the guys wearing the black hats that there's this somehow that sometimes the guys with the white hats don't do the right thing either so you've got this situation where christians are saying well what does what does all this cultural change mean for us and as we said there are particularly younger gen x leaders who are starting to ask questions about the seeker service model asking questions about the church's event. Do we need to have uh, church as this big event or is it more about relationship? And I first came across it in the late 90s when some of my friends started a church called Cafe Church in Newtown. Okay. And it was quite interesting to hear them talking about their experiment because they didn't actually have a church service at all. They sat around tables, drank coffee and someone gave a talk and it sounded a lot more like what the the hippie churches, mm-hmm. the, the, the 1970s... Um, Jesus movement, Jesus movement uh, coffee houses were like. So there were some in Sydney called uh, the Attic. Some people gathered at this attic and they got together and they drank coffee and they just heard some artists sing and then they heard someone give a talk. There was also in Australia the House of the Gentle Bunyip, which is a funky title. Um, the Purple Door was another one. And these these were also springing up at a time when the hippie communes were coming about. So it was almost like a Christian's response to a commune, which is where young people were dropping out of society to start their own societies in these small little ideas. There's also the house church movement that's that's coming along in the 70s where people are stopping meeting in big church buildings because it's the people who are the church. So they're meeting in homes, as they said uh, was relevant to how they read Acts 2 when people were meeting in different homes. So... The house church movement, the Jesus movement, were kind of shadows of this emerging movement that would come along. But um, yeah, now some of my friends were, were meeting in a cafe. Some people met in pubs. And before I knew it, I'm realizing that there's actually a name for these kind of groups and they're called the emerging church. So they're emerging new ideas on how to do church that are happening around that time. Right. And um, I mean, uh, do you think that's a, I mean, Tim talked about the evangelical subculture. And uh, do you think this was all a reaction to what was going on in the culture at the same time? Because yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so I think I think there was a sense in my generation that maybe Christianity had become a little bit too commercialized and a little bit cheesy, oh, even, okay, yep. and not real and a bit plastic. And so there were some who were saying that, and there there was this sort of search for something that had more meaning, and it actually was driven by evangelism because they're saying maybe the evangelical church is becoming further and further disparate from the rest of western culture so maybe we need to put church in the culture and there were leaders like alan hirsch who were arguing for this kind of thing um there were there were churches like um, mars hill which were set up by mark driscoll that were set up to be very different um, but in australia um, mark sayers on his podcasts um, this cultural moment talks a bit about how his early journeys in church if i understand it correctly were from within this kind of context of people looking to say let's do church differently and there's all these experiments that they were doing there were things like let's have an arts night or let's 
go up the pub and do church over a beer or let's have, um, you know, all these different expressions that we now feel free to be able to do if we take ourselves and free ourselves from the liturgical structure of other generations. And so all these different experiments are taking place and people are looking for something that might be transportable that can be used in other places. I think I just find that interesting that you're talking about experimenting. Um, we, a couple of episodes ago, said that um, experimentation was perhaps a, a mark of being along that evangelical line. Is that what you think people were trying to do? And as a church planter yourself, what, how do you view this kind of way of doing church and what do you think about it? Yeah, well, that was an interesting question because back in the late 90s and right through the 2000s, I was actually really happy being a youth minister and would have <laughs> happily been a youth minister for the rest of my, my working life. Mm. Uh, I, I was invited to church plant after I resigned from Guy Anglican Church in 2010 and or 11, 11 around there, yeah, 2011, and um, you know that that's another story. But uh, for a bit later, but the the mindset I had at the time was, do we actually need to create new churches, or do we as young people within our churches need to have a better conversation with the other <coughs> generations in our church to help them to understand some of the impulses that we have. So within our church at Glamour Anglican Church during the 2000s, we were in a conversation with our church about what does it look like to have community within the established set up that they had set up. So we had a homogeneous unit church where there was a, a traditional service, a family service and a youth service. And we kept going to the youth service, but we also started a supplementary ministry on Saturday night as a part of our church which is more community orientated, a meal, it was a longer hangout. And to some observers, it looked like an emerging church expression within Guymer Anglican, but it wasn't. It was actually an attempt by younger people to say, you know, let's have a conversation about uh, church where we can invite the rest of the adults in our church to it rather than break away from the church. So where some people might have on the surface seen us trying to have our own expression we were very diligent in trying to invite everybody just to come together in the generations and we had an intergenerational impulse that was a bit different to the emerging church because the emerging church was looking at let's start a church for inner city people hipsters let's start a church for this group of people this group of people whereas we were saying let's let's try and see if we can help our church at going Anglican and come together uh, around food and around um singing and around a talk and around the bible the word of god so so for us we weren't really seen as part of this movement mm. but we weren't also part of the expression that had been before either so soul revival was kind of an in-between kind of ministry makes it a bit exciting i suppose yeah it was good um so i mean there's also um you mentioned mars hill and um alan hirsch as well and i was mm. just that would you I think you wouldn't class that as part of the emerging church, but there was also a movement of church planting around that time. But they were sorry church planting in a different way. Is that yeah. is that the better, best way to describe yeah. it? Yeah, and and you know we could look at some of these church planting models a bit more detail a little later on in our series about evangelism and church planting, the role of church planting has in evangelism. But for today, it's probably enough to say that these two individuals are very different to each other, and it is a really good example of how people were doing different experiments mm. all over the place so alan hirsch down in melbourne was looking for um more organic if i understand it correctly more organic forms of church uh maybe smaller in some cases so there was more relationship whereas over in seattle uh mark driscoll was coming out of the grunge era with with his uh cohort 
trying to create a church that was relevant to his city. And so as a result, the Mars Hill experiment emerged as a different kind of church, but it had a real rock and roll flavour. It had a real overt masculinity attached to it. Mm. And it was a really different look to that. So it's a good example of how churches are starting to plant that are different. So just like we've talked in earlier episodes about how there are different models of youth ministry, within the merging church there were different models of church that are starting to develop uh, how you do it. Right. And I think like we talked about how technology, in particular the iPhone and the internet, really um, changed how we the culture actually it changed the culture completely and it still does right and and has a huge amount of influence on it is that kind of similar to what we're these two things that we're talking about church planning and the emergent church is it kind of like we need to create a new way of doing church and i know that we've already kind of said that but is it does it did it did it really shift the way that church was going to be done from then forward because it's, it's less traditional, isn't it? Like whether you have it in a pub or a house or a factory yeah. like we do here at Soul Revival, or is that is that shifting really how church is going to be done for a long time coming after that? Yeah, and, yeah I think with the pluralism comes a pluralism of approach. And, yeah. and we've already said there's an evangelical instinct towards keeping preaching the same message but doing it in a different way in different generations. And what we've contributed to that conversation is to say as we approach, as we attempt to do that let's include younger voices in our discussion about how we adapt to the new world and so you know i learn even to this day uh so much about about uh social media from my kids now i, I still remember telling them how to use an ipad telling them how to use an iphone but it was really quickly that i didn't have to tell them anymore and they were able to use it and then it wasn't long after that that they were actually becoming free tech advice for me <laughs> so it, it's actually really helpful and most people would relate to that dynamic that younger people just seem to pick up on what's going on quicker because they're immersed in it and that's the idea just like a car needs shock absorbers to go over a bump in the road so the church needs its young people to actually think about a christian response to some of the changes in culture and then have a conversation with the rest of the church about that so i think the challenge is that with these new church planning formats i think the challenge was how do we make sure that conversation takes place and my uh, concern is of the era that uh, emerging churches come from a really good impulse which is let's 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 help people who aren't christians in this new culture that is very different to the christian culture let's help them let's take away any cultural barriers that might be in front of people who don't come to church if they don't come to church why not go to them so that incarnational impulse that we've talked about before that uh, incarnational theologians would say just as jesus was a jew to the jew let's go and be in the pub with the pub people and who go to the pub so let's you know i'm a uh you know, going to the school to hang out with young people at school as a young youth minister. Um, you know, that's that incarnational impulse. So that's good, but the communication has to be two-way whenever we change something in the church because not only do we need to find a way of communicating with with people we're uh, spending time helping to share the truth and love of Jesus with, but we then need to have a conversation with the rest of the church and say, how does that affect you? How do you feel about that? What what have you got to say about what we're trying to do? And unfortunately with the emerging church, what I saw was a lot of young people leaving the church to have these experiments. And so the reason I didn't leave the church was because I wanted that shock absorber of being able to say, hey, we're going to start going to uh, 
the park to go and talk to people down the beach who are going to go for a surf and we were able to talk to our elders about that and get their opinions on some of those new ideas and they were able to say hey yeah we tried a couple of those things we found this didn't work we found this worked um but i like your idea because that's different and that's helping me see it in a different way so having that humble conversation was why i stayed as a youth minister for 20 years because i thought rather than the well you know the emerging churches you know achieved a lot of different things but by actually staying together in an existing church and doing new experiments in the church, if the adults of the church are flexible enough to let the young people try some new things, that's a really cool outcome. And so with that emerging church and the church planning uh, ideas and experiments that were happening, what were some of the um, things that resulted from that that you, that you were able to observe? Yeah, so as I've already said, there's a lot of disillusionment with the, with the uh, conservative church expressions that that they'd grown up in a lot of the institutional yeah so it's a bit anti-institutional uh it was a lot of the emerging church leaders sort of saw the church structures that they'd inherited as modernist and now we're in a postmodern era so they're saying that this is an important thing to move with that christian worship was really important to these new expressions and modern forms of evangelism so one-on-one evangelism becomes really important um friendship evangelism becomes really important um uh, Andrew Root talks about uh, in his book Re- Rediscovering Relational Evangelism. He talks about how you know we should be treating other people as important for who they are, not as a, a possible target for our evangelism. So evangelism is kind of changing in this context. There's also new issues that some emerging churches are really latching onto in a big way, which are things like. Um, um, social justice becomes a lot more of an important theme for many churches even liberation theology which we could talk about in another podcast which has come from south uh, america and there's some of the some of these um churches have left less influence uh, less importance put on the building and more importance put on the actual people themselves right. uh, there's also a, an attempt in some emerging churches that there's another part of this impulse which has been labeled emergent churches and emergent churches have also tended to you know have a have a deconstructionist view of theology as well so looking at things like universalism do people actually go to heaven and hell or is it just everyone is saved um okay. uh how much does um yeah just how do we how do we understand the bible from different minority contexts things like that become also something that emerging and emergent churches look at but this whole idea of deconstructing theology leads to people even personally deconstructing their own faith down the track and it would lay the seeds of future expressions of what we now call progressive uh, christianity which is another line that's now broken off from evangelicalism so just like there are fundamentalists now there are also progressives which we'll talk about in later mm-hmm. podcasts uh, so yeah i think i think looking at some of those issues that are in, important to church planters in that movement are really important and and i think again remember that the impact of 9-11 had on you when you're talking about that last week mm-hmm. it had that impact on the church there's this this questioning about what is authority like how safe is our um concept of uh our society what what are the, the what are the ways that we can reach people that are becoming less and less interested in going to institutional churches so this incarnational impulse is really driving a lot of that and that makes a lot of sense because and you know at the at the time after 9-11 terrorism was such a big thing wasn't it mm. and it was and the and the, the reason it's called terrorism to, is to create terror so mm. a lot of people were worried about that so that that makes a lot of sense i'm just wondering in regards to 
emerging church um, and church planning. Is there anything else around the time that happened in Australia that actually, like, was was part of that? Um, if there's anything you can remember that actually was was at the same as that at the, at the time. Yeah, well, well, down at uh, Melbourne, um, like we said, Mark Sayers was with a group of people that were thinking through some of these issues with Alan Hirsch and others. Um, my supervisor for my PhD, Darren Cronshaw, has uh, written extensively about this too. And I think it's a story of just different experiments. It's mm. just people attempting to say, okay, uh, sure, there are some people who are just deconstructing everything. But if we actually, if we actually do gather in the name of Jesus and we gather around his word, what does that look like for our generation? And uh, my supervisor, Darren, for example, uh, did his PhD looking at the, the different expressions of churches that came out of some of Alan Hirsch's encouragement to incarnational living and looking at how much that did impact evangelism. Did it actually make a difference to the communities around, things like that? So... I think I think what you've got is this ongoing search that I think kind of started in the '90s with with Mark Center's book, The Coming Revolution of Youth Ministry, which was arguing that there'll be different ideas on how you do youth ministry. In earlier days, everyone did the same kind of youth ministry, but he's arguing in the '90s now. Now people are looking for new, different experiments, and there'll be all these different plural, pluralistic, pluralistic rather <laughs> versions of how you do youth group and then i think as those youth leaders grow up then it seems natural to me that then the impulse for young church planners who are coming out of that environment is to continue on that yeah. uh, project in church planting as well and trying to cope with the speed of change that you've mm. talked about before and something yep. like the internet is just going to really accelerate that mm. speed of change as well so yeah because once upon a time denominations were what you defined your church as being a part right. of but now there's this really interesting impulse towards churches of different denominations all seeking to do these different experiments and connecting up on the internet and talking to each other meeting each other from all mm. over the world and as your point your point about um bringing up mars hill before is that they became so popular because they figured out a way to put their sermons out online as a podcast. And it was a huge thing. And it was a huge thing. Especially and it, when the iPhone came out in 2008. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Do you, speaking of the iPhone, uh, do you uh, remember the first time you got an iPhone and what, what kind of day it was for you? <laughs> did I, you line up? I don't remember lining up, oh. but I remember not getting one, first of all. I don't yeah. think I could afford it or I don't think I got there. Because they had there was two versions thing. before that 3GS came out. Yeah, I remember yeah. getting the 3GS. Right. So yeah. I think I think we got it around a similar time. Yeah, I think we did, yeah. I remember watching it for a while going, wow, that's trippy. I, actually, I do remember a friend of mine had gone over to the States and came back <laughs> from holidays with an iPhone and I was absolutely awestruck at touching <laughs> this screen going, are you kidding me? Didn't even have any buttons, man. It was mad. <laughs> One button. Remember, remember I think oh, it was, I did actually. I yeah. remember that. I bottom, remember reading yeah. a Steve Jobs biography that um, it was a very uh, difficult thing for the team to do, which was to create it just with one button. Now we and now we have iPhones without a button, which is it's crazy. But yeah, it's crazy. Um, just the one thing that I thought worth talking about is that the influence of the internet and people able to access so much more information. And it led to uh, there's the the kind of movement called the new atheists, mm. and that obviously would have affected the way that you, you especially in ministry and others in ministry, and um, and other, even Christians of evangelism really affected the way they would like have to, have to be able to tell people about Jesus. Um, we the, there is the four horsemen mm. of the new atheist movement, which is Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book The God Delusion, 
Christopher Hitchens, who wrote God is Not Great, and then also Daniel Dennett, who I don't know much about. I know more about the, the first three. What what did that look like when you're you're a minister at the time, youth minister? Were, were even people within youth ministry talking about that, or mm. was it just more of a widespread thing as a Christian? Well, yeah. So right through my ministry, there has been atheism and atheists, and atheists who have looked on Christianity as just delusional. Mm. What I think was a change within this uh, 2000s era when these new atheists movement comes about is all of a sudden it became a lot more pointed and aggressive and critical and it just seemed to all of a sudden go the the climate for me seemed to go from our oh, christians are just daggy people who are not very up to date with the latest things but they're kind of harmless they're off there on the side doing their own thing like you described mm-hmm. seeing your uh, christians before you were a christian yep. but then what goes on uh, particularly with Richard Dawkins, I think, in Australia anyway, with the God delusion, is this really heavy critique on God. And so once upon a time, atheists would say he didn't even exist and, you know, just a bit irrelevant. Now, Dawkins still doesn't think God exists, but what happens is there's this turn where there's this real critique on particularly the God of the Bible, the Judeo-Christian um, uh, writings. And so particularly with the Christian portrayal of god there's this idea of dawkins saying like god doesn't even exist but if he did he's he's crazy like he's he's actually like it's delusional to believe in him like it's like you believe in this big spaghetti monster in the sky but if if he did exist like he's psychopathic he's um angry he he hates people all these kind of words were starting to be banding around in the 2000s and i remember being quite shocked actually when i first heard it because being a Christian, growing up as a Christian, it sounded really quite potent, uh, right. a criticism of God himself and the Bible. And so now i found that the young people I was going to school uh, teaching in Scripture are now starting to quote some of this stuff back at us. And they don't seem to be reading it themselves mostly, but they are getting it through the internet. They're getting splices of this, that and the other. I know a lot of kids were watching YouTube. I remember YouTube coming out was massive because now people are watching these lectures by these guys Mm. and so in scripture they're saying uh, a lot more uh, that christianity is not just untrue it's dangerous and i think that's the big change that takes place at the time when there's a new explosion of social media and almost anybody can say anything they want i mean earlier in the decade you know myspace came out and that looked like that was going to be the biggest social media platform then facebook took over from myspace and i remember there was a little window there where people were debating which system was better and which one they were going to use but then afterwards you know myspace kind of withered on the line and facebook become really prominent Mm. and then came instagram and um, you know, eventually, as you know, there's a proliferation with Twitter and TikTok Snapchat and all sorts of things. TikTok, yeah. But through these social medias, the information that is critical of the church is spreading like wildfire. And so I think what is happening is right at the time after 9-11 takes place, and some of these new atheists are actually coming out more aggressively because some people of religious persuasion have flown a plane into a building. So okay. what was then called... Uh, Islamic extremism was for the new atheists a religious zeal that had gone way over the top and this extremist tag starts being used in the 2000s and so this has an impact because now these these new atheists are not just saying that was an extremist act they're saying all religion is extremist and all religion is dangerous and people believed it because they'd seen people flew a plane, fly a plane into a building. And now there are all these terrorist events happening all over the world in yeah. cities. And so this terror got brought home to 
us in Sydney and in other cities all over the world. There were, uh, you know, there was the Lint Chocolate um, Siege. There was the all these... London Underground. The London bombing. Underground bombing. You know, there's all these horrific events taking place. And so in the midst of that, these new atheists are saying, oh, are you shocked and surprised by all this? Well, actually, we're not because this is coming from religion and religion yeah, is right. delusional and dangerous. Yeah. And God is not great, Christopher Hitchens says. He's not actually great and good. There's actually this danger coming look at all the wars that people have fought over religion they would say now i think uh, i read again on the internet somewhere (laughs) that that you know less than four percent of wars in history have been motivated by religious uh stuff but it, it was almost there for a while that every war was created by religion and so people were just saying things on the internet and saying things and saying things it was almost like so many people said it that it became true and so yeah, for evangelism, we have a new challenge. And the new challenge is not just the iPhone, but the culture that is the iPhone has unleashed. And not just the iPhone, but 9-11. And not just those two things, but new movements that have emerged because of 9-11 and the iPhone, including new atheism. So this is a huge new chapter for Christian evangelism. How do we speak into this more angry atheistic environment mm. that's becoming increasingly secular i'm just wondering if when if someone quotes dawkins or and or hitchens or even sam harris to you at the time what was your response and how how were you able to handle that was it difficult yeah i think i think i took the same kind of approach that i take now like we took in the in the season where we we're looking at the 2010s i think you made the point that we're still working this out. And I think that's something mm-hmm. you heard again from Mark Sayers that, you know, th- when new things happen, you've got to kind of work out what's going on. So rather than having a knee-jerk reaction to these new ways of thinking, I just kept, I suppose, the traditional evangelical approach is to continue to preach the same message, that Jesus is good, that we have all been made in the image of God and that we are precious, that all human beings are precious and that uh, we have rebelled against God and new atheism was a form of rebellion against God, I thought. So... I would say, well, yeah, I mean, the Bible says there'll be people who will rebel against God, but there is a solution to that. Um, The Bible calls all rebellion against God's sin, and Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and anyone who accepts him can be forgiven, uh, receive the Holy Spirit, and live a new life, and actually have the hope of eternity. And eternity is real. God is real. The other response I had was, a lot of the critiques of the new atheists were about this general idea of God, like summed up with that, whole rust uh what what was that movement where they put like the um colanders on their heads and they reckon they pretended to be a religion by oh what was it called we we might put it in the show notes if we can remember but the um yeah they followed the great spaghetti monster in the sky and they registered themselves as a religion at one point stuff like that but um while you're looking that up uh the the idea for me was that the critiques from the new atheists seem to be about this idea of god but god is a person and so what I think I changed Pastor. gears in in my evangelism... Oh, you found it? Oh, Pastafarian. Pastafarian, that's right. I was going to say Rastafarian, but that is something completely different. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Pastafarian, and yeah. they believed in the big spaghetti monster in the sky, and they tried to register religion, stuff like that. Right. Um, some people even tried to get num- uh, their licenses with the colander on their head. I don't know what that represented. Maybe the straining of the pastor, I suppose that was... They called it... I think so. I think they just made up this crazy idea and tried to pass it off. And the idea, I think, was to laugh at religion in general. Like, you can make up anything and call it a religion. But what I was trying to counter that with was to say, well, actually, God is a person. He's not just an idea. Mm. And he's not a big spaghetti monster in the sky. He, he came to earth and he visited us. And he's Jesus. And he is a person. And so that's a good example of how the message doesn't change, but that 
real importance that we need to direct people clearly to Jesus was really important. Now, I think over the last 30 years before that, people had been in this apologetic mindset of still trying to explain to people that the Bible is trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And that's because that kind of impulse had been going on since the Scopes Monkey Trial where Christianity had been discredited by science. And so people from the 19, late 1920s on to the to the end of the century were trying to convince people that the Bible was reliable. And I think a lot of evangelism was coming out of that. And even one-on-one relationship evangelism of incarnationalism was was saying, yeah, this this is um, this is a true thing. But now in postmodernism, it's almost like this idea of truth has gone out the window and my truth and your truth can be completely different. And so I thought it was even more important to to take people straight to Jesus, not so much try and encourage them that the Bible was right or wrong and have lots of reasons why the Bible was true, which I, I still did. I mean, I still talked about that and the Bible is still true. I talk more about what the Bible teaches about Jesus at this time, and I think uh, Jesus coming to prominence in our evangelism was a big thing in that in that decade. Yeah. So with all that cultural change swirling around, mm. it's, you were preaching more just like there's the unshakable foundation of Jesus. Yeah. To, to yeah. Even no matter what's going on. Yeah. Outside. What's he like? So so you can you can attack um, the God of the Bible uh, from a distance, but when you you meet Jesus, it's very personal, mm. and so the Sermon of the Mount becomes an incredibly beautiful you know uh statement of 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 um love and you know you've heard it said uh love you you know hate your enemies and love your friends paraphrasing uh, well i say love your enemies like that's crazy uh so people were still delighted to hear those kind of statements because they thought oh don't religious people fly planes into the buildings of their enemies to kill them and blow themselves up in in shopping centers no actually Jesus says the way to follow God is to love even your enemies. And so I found that really countercultural. And that actually was deconstructing the popular mindset of religion being dangerous by replacing it with a mindset that that actually everything we're on about is about Jesus. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And it, and it almost um, uh, breaks down that argument of the, the, the new atheists trying to point score with each other and say, oh, this, is, this wins, but when you've got Jesus... It, transcends all that so yeah. again that's, we were always talking about that we, we 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 hope that when you're on this podcast you understand that we love jesus and what he does for yeah, us and yeah. for everyone else so 100%. thank you very much for your time Stu. it's been a great podcast again yep. as usual thank you very much thank you for everyone listening we really appreciate it you can get in touch and be part of the conversation in a number of ways and i'm going to list them off again just in case you haven't heard them before um and when this might be your first time listening so it's probably a good time to talk about it. uh you can email me at joel at shockabsorber.com.au. You can subscribe to our email newsletter at shockabsorber.com.au. You can subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast app or check it out on YouTube. You can even subscribe on YouTube if you wish. Uh, there's a Discord link. If you want to chat more in detail, uh, you can jump on the Discord. That'll be on in the show notes. And you can also might like to check out the Soul Revival Shop where all our profits and proceeds from that go towards our Indigenous ministry partners, soulrevival.shop for that one. Having said that, thank you very much, Stu. We appreciate it. And look forward to next week and finish with a one-way. 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 One way.